commit it to you afresh. In your great name, Jesus, amen. Well, I, I have a question for you as we start. Would it be faith or folly to jump off the 801, uh, 801 building downtown and expect God to save you? I have a picture here. 801 Grand is over 600 feet tall. And I ask my kids that question, and they instinctually sensed that it would be foolish. But they had trouble explaining why. And I wouldn't be surprised if, if that'd be true for some of you as well. And think about it. Isn't God all-powerful? Yes, that's what we believe as Christians, right? Would it be too hard for him to save someone jumping in that situation? No, no, it, it wouldn't be. And so is the real reason Christians don't go around jumping off of buildings and doing other crazy things like that, that we just don't have the type of faith that God wants? Real faith, strong faith? Well, please listen closely. The answer is no, I don't want anyone going jumping, jumping off buildings. My pastor told me that's what God wants. No, that is not the type of faith God is looking for. And we know that for a fact because Satan tempted Jesus to jump off the temple, the closest thing in size, the 801 grand building in ancient Israel. He said, jump, jump off and let God save you. And how did Jesus respond? He responded by quoting scripture. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. God is not a genie. And the faith he calls us to does not expect God to use his power however we demand or desire. And so that's not what faith looks like. But what does real faith expect from God? What's it based on and what does it look like? That's what Paul is going to unpack for us in today's powerful passage. And to work through it together, we're going to consider two main questions. What is faith based upon? And what does faith look like? If you're taking notes, that's what is faith based upon and what does it look like? And we have a lot to cover. But before we jump in, I want to give a shout out to my friend and fellow pastor, Dan Rude. As, as pastors, we often will talk as a group about uh, passages coming up that we're preaching on and a, a handful of the new insights I'm excited to share with you uh, in this section that came from him. And so with that uh, background, our first main point, and for our first main point, I want you to listen again to, to Romans 4, 13. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. The role of God's gracious promise in salvation. It's one of the, the major themes of this section. And it's captured in verses 20 through 21, which says that Abraham's faith was strengthened because he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was able to do. This is one of the most helpful descriptions of faith in the whole Bible. Faith believes that, can, that God can do all that he's promised. So what practically is biblical faith based on or built upon? Well, Paul is showing us. Now, ultimately, as Christians, our, our faith is in God himself. But, but practically, biblical faith, the way that plays out, is that it's based on his promises. That's why jumping off the 801 Grand building, that, that is not faith. That's expecting God to just operate however we want him to, to use his, his power however we want him to. Another way to say this is that biblical faith has content. It has content. It's not based on our feelings. It's not just some positive energy that you direct towards heaven. 
It's not some mis- misguided attempt to prove God. No, God's promises are the firm foundation that we can plant our feet on as believers. It's, it's what we can expect from God in this life as we follow him. God's promises are to motivate us to obey him when we don't feel like it, which is often the case in life. Often our flesh, we, we don't want to do what God says. Now, why should we obey him in those situations? Is it to earn our spot in heaven? Well, all, all of Romans, the whole Bible says, no, you can't earn your way into heaven by obedience. So then why should you obey God if you don't feel like it? It's God's promises. God gives us his promises. He says, this is why. This is why you should obey me. And so in light of that, here's a helpful general definition of faith. Faith is putting confidence in real or perceived promises. Faith is putting confidence in real or perceived promises. By this definition, everyone in the world operates by faith. Not just Christians, not just Muslims, Hindus, all religious people, even atheists. Our decisions are constantly being based on the word of others. And I thought about this recently because I've had some car, some car issues, and the, the issue is kind of strange. My windshield wipers will just randomly turn on. Like, it happens, like, every couple months, but I'll just be driving down the road, and uh-uh, uh-uh, like, they, I, they come on, and I can't, I can't get them off. And so, it doesn't look very good when it's sunny out, and you're just driving down the road, down the interstate with the windshield wipers on. You have to, like, the only way I can get them off is to, to pull off, turn off my car, wait a little bit, and then turn it back on. And so, so finally, I took it, took it in to get dealt with, and uh, when I left, I thought to myself, I have no idea how to check if they actually fixed it. You know, it's like it only comes on randomly, and I, I wouldn't even know where you would look to see how to, how to fix this uh, windshield wiper issue. So I left, and I thought to myself, I'm glad I know the people who work there. I'm glad I, I trust them, because I'm just taking them at their word that they fixed it. They could have just let it sit there for an hour while I was in the lobby. I would have no clue. And so that's how so much of life operates. Here's just another example most people, they don't think twice if they have a headache or some aches to, to go grab a bottle of ibuprofen, take a, take a pill, and pop it, to put a drug into their body. Now, how do you know that's ibuprofen? How, how do you know? Most of us, we, we, don't, we, didn't, we didn't make it. We don't have the resources to, to test it. So how do you know? Well, there, there's a label on it that says ibuprofen, and so we, we trust that. We trust that. We we think, all right, someone, this was made carefully. This has been tested. If you're cynical like me, you probably think they would have gotten sued a long time ago if they weren't putting actual ibuprofen in the ibuprofen bottles. And so we we put our confidence, we put our confidence in in their word as a company. Now, this becomes even more clear when you just switch the scenario. Imagine someone comes up to you off the street and they have a, a brown bag and they say, oh, you got a headache? These are pretty sweet. Like, you need some of these. Like, what are you gonna do in that situation? Like, oh, yeah, honey, come here, bring the kids. He's got, he's got some good stuff. It's like, no, no. You would say, that, that's completely reckless to take, to take those pills from a stranger. And yet it's reasonable to take pills that were stocked in the grocery store by a stranger, made by strangers. Why is that reasonable? Because they, that, their word is trustworthy. As a company, we, we, I'll, trust, I'll trust them. See, this is the way life operates. We can come up with millions and millions of examples. Life is based on real or implied promises, and they trace back to four primary sources. The first source of promises that you can base your life on 
is yourself. It's, it's the promises that you tell yourself. See, all of us, we, we have thoughts that come into our mind, desires from our personality, from our experiences, also from our sinful nature all the time. And so we tend to trust our instincts when it comes to thinking about what's going to, to give us the life that we want, satisfaction and security, significance. So we tend to, to trust our own instincts in those things. But is that a good idea? Well, think about, think about it this way. Why, why do some of us here, why do we eat a second bowl of ice cream when we already had one big bowl with three scoops in it? <laughs> why, why, why do we do that? Well, there's something in us that says, that's what I need to be happy. <laughs> that, that will make my life better if I have that. I need, I need another bowl of, of ice cream. We, we listen to ourselves. We listen to our own desires. Now, you can get away with that uh, for a while, think about another example. What about workaholics who work so hard that they, they end up destroying their families? Or people who they've been hurt and they refuse to forgive someone else. They know they should, but they think, I don't, I don't want to. Where does that come from? It comes from within yourself, your sinful nature. And so the, those decisions, they're, they're based on the implied promise that our life it will be better if we're successful. It will be better if we hold on to bitterness. Now, Proverbs, it tells us there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. There's so many things that, so many instincts that we have, desires we have, and if we follow them, it will destroy our lives. And so you shouldn't build your life just on your own instincts, the promises you tell yourself, but the second source of promises is other people. Now, this is tricky because we're relational creatures. We do need to trust uh, other people and have meaningful relationships, but human beings, we're limited. We're very limited. Often people make promises they want to keep, but unforeseen circumstances come up and prevent them from doing it. Like I might promise to give someone a ride, and then I get in my car, and the windshield wipers, rrr, 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 I, have to, I have to call and be like, hey, I, I, can't, I can't pick you up. I think I'm gonna, get, I'm gonna get into an accident or pulled over. There's things that can come up, and we intend to, to do something, and we're not able to follow through. We're also so limited as human beings in terms of what we know. It's crazy how little we know about, about life and understand about life. Even when we're trying to help people, we can actually end up causing more harm than good. I saw a wild example of this recently. Uh, I don't know how long ago this was, but back in the day, they would sell cocaine toothache drops with actual cocaine in them. And so they're thinking, oh, this will, this will help. There's people who are genuinely trying to help other people. Now, it didn't take very long to figure out that's causing a lot more harm than good, right? But I wonder, in 100 years, what are people going to look back on our culture and be like, that's cocaine tooth drops. Like, you guys are dumb. Like, what are you, what are you doing? There's so much we don't understand about life. And so, so human beings are limited. But there's another big reason not to base our life off of off of the word of other people. And that's because people can lie. People lie. We have lied before. People can lie to get what they want in life. Probably everyone here has had people that you really, really trusted who let you down, who hurt you in, in big ways. And again, sometimes it, it might have been unintentionally. But people, they can lie. And so we shouldn't build our life just on our own instincts. Just, we shouldn't build it just on the word of others. But the next option is the promises of Satan, the devil. Now, you probably think, well, 
uh, like who's going to do that, right? <laughs> no, no one's going to do that. And you'd be surprised that the Bible says, um, actually, all humanity does that. All of humanity does that. You see, the first three categories, they're all interconnected. The Bible categorizes them as the flesh. So that's the desires of our sinful nature. And that's influenced by the world. So the desires and promises and idols of those without Christ. And all of that's influenced by the lies of the devil, who are told masquerades as an angel of light. The very first false promise in Scripture is when Satan contradicts God's word and tells Eve that if she eats the forbidden fruit, you will not die. God says, if you eat it, you'll die. Sin said, no, you won't. You're not going to die. Actually, God's holding out on you. He goes on to say, to tell a real life is going to be found living independently of God, being your own God, being in control of your own life. And that is the lie that all of humanity is born believing and operating upon since Adam and Eve's sin. All of us, by default, we actually follow the lies of Satan. So what's the fourth option? Well, it's God's promises. It's God's promises. And what God wants is for each of us to bet our lives and eternity on his promises. Now, everyone in the world is already doing that. It might be subconsciously, but everyone is already betting their life and their, uh, and their identity on certain promises. And so what God wants for Christians is to get to a point where they realize it is not appropriate for God to be on the peripheral of my life. God should not just be a hobby. If God is who he, he says he is, if he's done what he says he's done, the only thing that makes sense is to push all of my chips in and say, I'm going to build my life, not based ultimately upon what other people say, not even based upon my own instincts and desires. I'm going to listen to God. I'm going to build my life on his promises. Proverbs says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. See, God wants us to, to trust in him, to trust his promises. And there's one all-important promise that's expressed in many different ways in the Bible that we have to deal with first before considering any of the other promises. And that's the, the promise of justification by faith in Christ alone. That's what Paul's been hammering the whole book of Romans so far. And for example, Jesus' atoning sacrifice for sin on the cross that he describes in, in chapter 3, it leads Paul to say this in chapter 4. Now to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. Here's the promise everyone has to deal with. How, how are you going to be right with God? See, Shrine did such a good job last week explaining that, that our pride is naturally offended by God's clear promise. That the only way you can be right with God, the only way you can be accepted before him is by faith in Christ. Faith in Christ's sacrifice for you. We instinctively think that we have to earn God's approval by our actions. But the entire Bible says, no, that, that is impossible. We're ungodly. But what, what, what we need is for God to somehow be able to justify us before him, even though we don't deserve it. And Romans says that can only be accomplished. Justification can only be received. It can't be earned by human beings. We can't earn that place before God. And so we can only receive that gift when we stop trusting ourselves, stop trusting in our own work, and believe in Christ's work on the cross to save us. When people trust that most basic promise, they're born again. 
They come into a new relationship with God. And then all the promises of God for his people are extended to them, to them as well. And that's what we're meant to build our life upon. That's what Christians are to base their life and decisions on. And to see an incredible example of this, Paul reminds us of the example of Abraham. This brings us to our second main point. What does faith look like? What does faith look like? Now, there's so much going on in this section, but I want to point out two observations for you from verses 17 to 21 about the example of Abraham's faith. The first is that faith does not ignore reality. Faith does not ignore reality. This is contrary to the way many people view faith. Mark Twain, in his characteristically witty way, once said, having faith is believing in something you just know ain't true. It's believing in something you you know it, you know it's not true, but it's so cute. It's so wonderful. You just try and believe it anyway. (laughs) That's the way many people think about faith. It's wishful thinking. It's just a way of coping with life. You, You believe what you want to believe, even though you know that the facts disprove it. Now, Many people would agree with that definition, but I would say much of our society, even non-Christians, they view faith positively, but they basically reduced it to the law of attraction. This says that if you stay positive, if you have a good attitude, then positive things will happen to you. Good things are going to happen to you. And so if if you just focus on what you want long enough, if you focus, you, you believe that you can get it, then eventually everything's going to work out for you. And this idea, it has seeped into the thinking of so many Christians. And brothers and sisters, that is not what faith is. That's not what biblical faith is. It's not this blind optimism or just a a positive mental attitude. And it's certainly, biblical faith is certainly not afraid of facts or reality. Look at verse 19 again. It says, Abraham did not weaken in his faith when he considered when he considered, when he thought about his own body to be already dead since he was about 100 years old and also the deadness of Sarah's womb, Abraham's faith did not ignore reality, but it looked it right in the eyes. He was fully aware that there was no human possibility of him and Sarah having a child together. No, no matter how positive he was, no matter how optimistic he tried to be, he was 100 He recognized his body was no more helpful than a corpse in terms of fathering a child. That's what it means. He says his own body, he considered it to be already dead. It couldn't couldn't function in that way. And, And Sarah, his wife, had always been barren. The two of them had been unable to have children for over 60 years. And so this is the equation that Abraham was working with. Abe's dead body plus Sarah's dead womb. What should that naturally equal? Hopelessness. Hopelessness. There's no hope for a child in that scenario, and Abraham knew it. And yet, it says he had hope. Why, Why did he have hope? It's not because Abraham ignored reality. It's because he factored the promises of God into it. He factored the promises of God into reality. And so, Abe knew reality. He knew the situation, but this is the actual equation that he was working with. My dead body, my wife's dead womb, plus God's promise equals a triumphant hope. Verse 18, it says, Abraham believed, hoping against hope, so that he became the father of many nations, catch this, according to what had been spoken or what had been promised to him, so will your descendants be. 
Where did Abraham's hope come from? It was that God had made him a specific promise that his descendants through Isaac would become a great nation and bless the whole world. Abraham wasn't ignoring reality. Verse 17 gives us more proof of that. We're told that Abraham believed in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence that which does not exist. Now, if you were trying to convince someone to trust you, if they're wondering, you know, what, do you, what do you have to offer me? How do I know you're going to come through on your word? It's a pretty good resume to say, well, I actually spoke the whole universe into existence. I just spoke it and it came to be. It all depends on me. <laughs> and I have the power to, rise, to raise the dead, to, to give life to the dead. So what, what Paul's pointing to here are the, the two greatest displays of God's power in history, his creation of the universe and his resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now this says Abraham, he knew that God personally. He knew, he knew our creator personally. And so what was absolutely hopeless apart from his God was absolutely certain to happen if God had promised it. If God had promised it. That, that is exactly how God wants us to learn to live. And so let me ask you a question. Can you look and face the hard realities in your life? Or do you try to hide from them by coping? You see, many people, they ignore the hard things in their life, whether it's disappointment over unmet expectations, relational turmoil and conflict, fear and insecurity, or our obvious character flaws. Many people, they, they can't face those difficulties. And so instead, they just try to distract themselves. They try and cope with different ways, whether it's, whether it's you know, a second bowl of ice cream, whether it's binge watching net, Netflix, whether it's just turning to something else in your life that it's easier for you to control. So many people, they, they just ignore reality, try and cope in different ways. And Christians, we don't have to do that. We don't have to do that. God's promises give us supernatural resources and strength to face the very worst or scariest aspects of reality with courage and with strength. And that's why the most faithful and joy-filled Christians are never those who ignore reality. It's never the people who ignore reality. It's typically those who have considered reality the most carefully. It's those who have thought deeply about life and God's word and seek to factor God's promises into all that they do. One of my friends, he has an exercise that, that has helped him to cultivate this considered faith that Abraham had. When life feels frustrating or overwhelming, he'll take a sheet of paper and then draw a line down the middle of it. And on the top left side, he puts obstacles, the word obstacles. And then he just writes down, what are the, what are the pain points? Where do I feel pressure and stress? So he writes those all out on one side. And then guess what he puts on the other side? Promises. And what he does is he, he goes across and he, he thinks about applicable promises from God's word for the challenges he's facing. Now, for some of you who you're not, you're not in the habit of doing this, that might be very helpful for you. Others of you, you do this all the time, either through journaling or through your times in prayer. You don't ignore the problems in your life. You bring them to God, but you look at them through the lens of God's promises. Promises like when God says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Seek first my kingdom and righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Promises like, my power 
is made perfect in weakness because my grace is sufficient for you. I've given you my commands so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. For our light and momentary affliction is producing an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. These are just the tip of the iceberg of the promises that God has given to us. And he's given them to us so we can face reality with our feet firmly planted on the ground. So we can know what to expect from God as we follow him and depend on him. God does not promise to give us an easy life. He doesn't promise that. But he does promise to be with us. He does promise to be enough to satisfy us. He does promise that he'll give us strength to obey him. And he promises that that he'll help us when we fall, that as we repent, he'll help us get back and continue to walk with him. Have you ever bet your life and your eternity on the promises of God? Have Have you consciously done that? None of us will do it perfectly. But again, God wants us to to look at life, to look at what he's claimed to have done, to look at his promises and get to a point where you say, okay, I'm going to go all in. I'm going to base my life off of God and his his promises. If you've never done that before, I'd invite you to do some soul searching. Do some soul searching. Don't rush into that. But I'd encourage you, make that decision. Make that conscious choice because there's no one more trustworthy than God. No one better to trust your life to. Okay, second observation. Second observation from these verses, faith is not static. Faith is not static. That means it, it's not fixed and, and una, unable to fluctuate. Verse 19, it says, Abraham did not weaken in the faith when he considered his own 100-year-old body. And the implication here is that his faith could have weakened. Then in verse 20, it says he was strengthened in the faith, which means that Abraham's faith grew stronger. And that means our faith can grow stronger as well. Now, some of you are probably wondering at this point, how can Paul say that Abraham's faith didn't waver? Like, hasn't, hasn't Paul read Genesis? Has he ever, have you, has he ever read the account? <laughs> Abraham obviously did falter in big ways at times in his life. And what Paul is communicating here, my best understanding is he's not talking at all about perfect faith. He's talking about persevering faith. Persevering faith. That's what God is looking for. Abraham faltered. He failed, but he continued to get back up and remember God's promises. And as Abraham did that, he saw God fulfill his promises over and over and over again, sometimes in dramatic ways. Remember when his nephew Lot was taken by an invading, an invading army? He attacked this massive army with a, a small number of troops, and he, def- he just routed them. He was able to save, save Lot. There's also the time when, when he foolishly went down to Egypt. He made all kinds of foolish decisions, and God rescued him. God, God saved him from that, from that. And so Abraham, he experienced God's faithfulness to his promises even during the times when he was unfaithful. Even when he was unfaithful. Now, because Abraham walked with God, relying on God's promises, he got to experience not only God's faithfulness, but also God's power and a deep friendship with God. No one in the Bible is is called a friend of God as often as Abraham is. It was the years of walking with God by faith that brought Abraham to verse 21, where it says he was fully convinced. He was fully convinced that God had the power to do what he promised. Wouldn't it be nice to be fully convinced 
that God will fulfill all of his promises. Wouldn't that be nice to be fully convinced each day? I mean, think about how different our life would be. Our relationships would be, just the state of our soul would be day to day if we were fully convinced of God's promises. Christians do trust God, but we can still struggle with doubts. And what we tend to want is we want a fully convinced faith that Abraham had near the end of his life walking with God. We want that fully convinced faith up front. We want that type of faith without being tested, without going through trials. But it's through the trials that God proves himself faithful and proves himself strong and proves himself to be enough for us. Now, I've shared this illustration before, but it's been very helpful for me over the years. Right after college, I worked for a couple of summers doing home remodeling with a man from our church named Paul. And we, we reshingled a number of houses that first summer in some pretty nice neighborhoods. And so there were some really big houses, these three-story three houses. And I'd have to carry shingles up these 30-foot ladders. Now, I'm generally not, not afraid of, of heights, but those ladders, they're so big they would bow in the middle as you're going up them. They, they'd kind of they'd shake side to side, sway a little bit. And so I was pretty nervous you know, at the, the start of the summer. I'd be going up them, and I'd be thinking, is this ladder reliable? Is it, is it actually going to be able to hold me up? Now, but by the end of the summer, that hesitancy was gone. Like, I, I was going up and down those ladders so many times over the course of the summer that I, I began to not even think twice about it. And what changed? It wasn't the ladders. It was the exact same ladders what changed was my confidence in them, my faith in them to be able to hold me up. That had grown over the summer. Now, my faith, it was nothing compared to my boss. My boss, if there were, if there were ladder Olympics, he would be a gold medalist. Like, he would be the, one of the best in the world because he was a second-generation handyman, and so he'd spent his life going up and down ladders. He, it showed. I mean, he, he would do crazy things on ladders, Paul, he, he would do things that, that OSHA wasn't, uh, wasn't very excited about. Now, one example, he's like, he would lean on the ladder, stretch way out, you know, to, to nail something that was nail spot in that was hard to get to. And he'd do things that was like, ooh, boss. You know, you could say he might have gotten too comfortable <laughs> on, on the ladders. But that, that's the point. He was so confident. He's alive still, if you're wondering. <laughs> he's still alive. He was so confident about the ladders. God wants us to be fully convinced of his promises. He wants you to become fully convinced of his promises, that he's able to do what he promises to do. See, if you're a Christian, all of God's promises, they've been given to you. They're available to us. Now, one of the, the things, not the only thing, but one of the things that, that separates those who who grow to have a strong faith, this deep confidence in God, and people who never seem to be able to get traction in their life. One of the factors is that those who have a strong faith, they tend to more and more consistently apply the promises of God to their decisions. They tend to trust God, and so they experience God's faithfulness over and over, and it builds their confidence. It builds their assurance that he is reliable, that God will come through for them. Now, the thing that has jumped out, thinking about these things in the passage, the thing that has jumped out to me is that God, he's much more serious about our faith being strengthened than we are. 
He's much more serious about that for believers than we are. And one of the best examples of this is near the end of Abraham's life. You know, God, he supernaturally did give Abraham and Sarah, their beloved son Isaac, just as he promised. But when Isaac was still young, God asked him to do the, the totally unexpected, the totally unthinkable. He asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. Now, most of you know the story, so it's easy to, to miss the weight of it. But just imagine how shocked and confused Abraham must have been. Like, why, why would God do that? Why would God ever do that to his friend? Well, Genesis 22 tells us it was to test Abraham. It's clear from Scripture God never intended Abraham to kill Isaac. But Abraham didn't know that. Abraham was being tested by God, and every believer is going to be tested as well. The story of Abraham, it's sobering to me because it proves that God's willing to let his people go through seasons of confusion and pain, even emotional agony, in order to strengthen our faith in him. To see, are, are we going to trust him or ourselves, our emotions? Do we really love him or do we just love the blessings that come from him? Do we love God or just his gifts? Abraham, he trusted God. He, he was willing to go. He, he was willing to take Isaac. He was willing to go up the mountain. God commanded to take his son up the, the mountain, to put his son on the altar. And he raised his son, plan, he raised his knife, planning to bring it down and end the life of his son. And with that as a background, I want you to think about this question. Do you desire to trust God that much? Do you desire to have that strong of a faith in God? <laughs> now, I think to myself, obviously the answer should be yes. But I know personally, often I can settle with trusting God only as far as I'm comfortable with and not as far as God's word is calling me to. And so how in the world, how did Abraham trust God so much that he was willing to sacrifice his beloved son, the one he'd been waiting 25 years to receive from God? It was the promises of God. It was God's promises. God had promised Abraham that Isaac would have children, that his, his blessing of the whole world would come through Isaac. Had, did Isaac have children yet when God asked Abraham to sacrifice him? No, no. And Abraham knew, that's why Abraham knew that Isaac was somehow going to live despite what God had commanded him to do. And we, we get this confirmed in Hebrews eleven nineteen. 19. It kind of unveils Abraham's thought process, which is hinted at in Genesis. But in terms of why he was willing to sacrifice Isaac, it says, he, Abraham, considered God. Here's that word again. He's not ignoring reality. He knows exactly what God's asking him to do. He considered God to be able to even be able even to raise someone from the dead. He didn't ignore reality. He knew God is going to bless, bless the world through Isaac. And so if he, if he wants me to carry through, if he wants me to kill him, then he's going to raise him from the dead. Now God called it off. God provided another sacrifice. But brothers and sisters, what, what a dramatic example. Again, that, that our faith, it's, it's not static. It's not static. God wants it to grow. And God, he, he wants our intimacy with him, the sweetness of our relationship with him, the enjoyment of it. He wants it to grow in ways that you can't even fathom. I can't even fully comprehend right now. But the same is also true. Your faith can falter. Your, your faith, it can take steps backwards. And the, the crossroads in many ways is what are you going to do with God's promises? 
What are you going to do with the, the promises of God? His desire is for our faith to grow strong, for us to go up and, up and down the promises that he makes us day after day, basing our life, basing our decisions on what he's said instead of our own fickle feelings and emotions. Now, for that to happen, there's a key. There's one key. You must believe and become convinced that God genuinely loves you and cares about you personally. We all understand this when it comes to human relations. Just think about who do you trust the most? We don't tend to naturally, uh, the people we trust the most are not often the strongest people we know. They're not, not often the smartest people we know. The ones we trust the most naturally are the people that we are most convinced genuinely love us and care about us. There are other factors, but that, that is the most foundational. And this is where the example of Abraham's faith foreshadows the ultimate proof for God's people that we can trust him and that he really does love us. See, there is an appropriate revulsion that we have to the idea of sacrificing our child. Have you ever read that account and been like, that, that's, just, that's terrible. How, how could God ask Abraham to do that? It's, there's a natural revulsion that comes with the, with the thought of that. You know, he asked Abraham to give up his only child. And I was thinking about my son, Dawson. Before I had any other kids, Here's a picture of Dawes. This is one of my favorite memories with him when he was a, a child playing in the leaves. And I think to myself, there is a 0% chance that I would sacrifice him for, any, any, for anyone else. Like any of you guys, I'm sorry, there's no chance. I'm gonna sacrifice Dawson for you or any, any of my kids. And that's appropriate. God, God has implanted that in us, that instinct And you see, the whole test of of Abraham, it appears to just highlight, it's meant by God to highlight the far greater sacrifice that God the Father made when he delivered his son up on the cross for us. Now, obviously, it's not a one for one. There's there's ways where this was a much greater sacrifice that God made on our behalf. Romans 4.25 says that, that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses or our sins. Now, he was delivered up by the Jews, the Gentiles, yes, but who was he ultimately delivered up by? It was God the Father. You know, Romans 3.25, in a section filled with sacrificial language, it says that God presented his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God presented his son. God made the ultimate sacrifice. God planned the cross because he loves sinners like you and me. He planned the cross because he knew the the only way that we could become his sons and daughters and enter his family was by faith in his son, faith in in Christ's work on the cross. Praise God that our salvation, it doesn't depend on how great of sacrifices we make out of faith for God. That's not what our salvation depends on. No, it's based on the sacrifice that his son made for us. And it's only those who have been justified by faith in Christ's blood who trust in Christ, only, only those can come to trust as completely and confidently in God's promises as Abraham did. Jesus voluntarily and willingly went to the cross so that as believers, we can confidently declare, he who did not spare his own son, his greatest treasure, if he didn't spare his own son, how will he not along with Jesus graciously give us all things? To close one application for you, Those of you who want to grow in your faith, I'd encourage you to to memorize, meditate, and make decisions motivated by the promise of God. God is committed to our spiritual growth, but he's also given us a role to play in it. And if we're going to walk by faith, 
then what we need to do is we need to load our soul with the promises of God. We have to load our soul with God's promises, and we need to, we need to soak our souls in them and meditate on them, pray over them. Let, let it, those transform our mind and, and consider them when we face trials and make decisions. And if you've never realized the, the critical link between a life of faith in God and trusting in his promises, or, or if you need to re- reprioritize that, I wrote out some of my favorite promises and thoughts about the connection between faith and, and promises back in college. And, and those have been very helpful to me over the years, helpful to others. And so I printed out a number of copies of them and they're sitting in the counter just out, out in the atrium. And so if you'd like to grab one, please, please do if you think that might be helpful. I'd also love to talk to you. If, if you have thoughts about this, I know this topic can actually open up a lot of conversations about practicalities. And so I'd love to talk with any of you about it as well. But we've already used up our time for today. And so please pray with me one more time. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the cross. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice you, you made. And God, I, I pray that we would be more convinced than ever before of your heart for us. God, I pray that we'd be convinced of, of your love for us. And I, I thank you, God, that you don't want that just to, to be a concept. You want us to experience the reality of your of your power in our lives as we walk with you, as we see you come through on your promises to provide for us and to lead us and to transform us, to change us from the inside out. I thank you so much for my brothers and sisters here. Thank you for so many of them who are wonderful examples of this. And I do pray that over this next year, God, that there'd be a fresh hunger, God, for our strength to grow, for our relationship with you to go deeper. And so we ask you to do that and pray this all in your great name. Amen. Well...